Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log Supplemental. Star Trek into Bob Orsi. Welcome into another supplemental edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. John Champion, this is crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> How is it crazy? I think, I think I actually said in this interview, and I don't remember if it made the edit or not, but I think I actually said in the interview, if, if I weren't part of the conversation that people are yeah. about to hear, I would be so jealous. <laughs> I, I, we got like an hour and a half, I think, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit of time to spend with, um, with a, a rather mercurial character this summer i would say oh oh you are you referring to the mercurial bob orsi well is he mercurial or the situations around him it's been a nutty summer for him i mean it's been a yeah i would say it's been a good summer for him Mm -hmm. but then if you're somebody who cares what the people who actually pay attention to what you're doing think because you know there are some people in hollywood who don't you know from some of the stuff that's gone on online and then certainly from uh, if you're if you're lucky enough, mm-hmm. and, and and let me stress again, I am so incredibly lucky. We are so incredibly lucky to have had this uh, to have had this opportunity. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to talk to him, Bob Orsi cares what people think. Well, yeah, yeah, he does. I mean, that's what's so cool is that a lot has been made about him coming into Star Trek as a fan. Like uh, among the people who are creating new Star Trek, uh, he's the guy that always gets tagged as being the fan. And then you have this balance between him and JJ and Lindelof and Kurtzman that some don't know that much, but he knows a lot. And uh, he's been sort of the guy to, uh, to champion the cause of the other fans. But then then we are slapped with the cold, hard reality of making a movie and decisions that have to get made. And maybe those decisions aren't the most popular decisions. <laughs> so um, Bob, uh, bless him, goes on to message boards and he pays attention to what other fans are saying. And he engages in conversation. And sometimes that conversation gets heated. But I think you and I took a little bit different tactic because it's not our style now, is it? Uh, well, not when he's in the room, no. Well, no. Okay, not not when he's in the room. You know, someday maybe you and I will sit down and we'll – actually, we have done that a little bit. We'll hash out our differences about Star Trek Into Darkness. But when we have him in the room, as we did not that long ago, we, we try to elevate the conversation, I think, we as hard as that may be for us to do. And we try to really figure out the thought process behind Into Darkness, whether liking it or not – how did they arrive at the decisions they arrived at in developing into darkness? It wasn't just a blow by blow. Why did you do this? Why did you do this? You yeah. know what? You know what? Let's do. Let's let's just. I mean, I think we've I think we've talked around it enough. Let's let's let people into this um, really uh, quite in depth, uh, quite mm-hmm. um, quite cordial, okay. and and uh, honestly, I think very informative uh, conversation that you and I got to have uh, with Bob Orsi. And here we are with Bob Orsi, one of the co-writers of Star Trek from 2009 and Star Trek Into Darkness. And uh, he was kind enough to sit down, uh, Ken, with you and me, and uh, we're going to talk about Trek. And, you know, we do this every week. We're going to say that we're not going to break the timeline. (laughs) You and I are talking about the original series 
uh, at this point in Mission Log, but we're going to break the timeline. We're going to talk about the J.J. Abrams version of Star Trek. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, I, I want to sort of start things off, though, by getting some background on our guest. I, I want to understand where you're coming from with your Star Trek fandom. I want to know what you grew up watching. You, you know, who were the characters that really spoke to you? What were the, the themes and stories that stuck with you? Uh, let's see. Born in Mexico City, mm -hmm. used to visit my uncle who was living with his parents, my grandparents in Florida. And it was as a kid, six, seven, eight, where in Florida, my uncle, who I named the captain of the Kelvin after, Mr. Richard Rabau, uh, introduced me to Star Trek, the original series. And he just made it plain to me at that point that it was the first time that legitimate sci-fi had been on television when he was a kid or when he was uh uh, younger and that was sort of my entry into sci-fi you know I'd watch it with him um, and then just in the summer and then when Star Trek Wrath of Khan came out that was the first film that I saw in the theater of a Star Trek movie so the original series Wrath of Khan uh, and then in high school Next Generation came out, and that was one that was one that I was able to watch as it came out. You know, I wasn't catching up on reruns and stuff, and that one very much spoke to me. So those those are the three touch points that really solidified me as a Trek fan. So give me your take on that. You know, what 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 was it that stood out to you? I mean, I, I think that when Ken and I talk about Star Trek, one of the things we talk about is how we get to keep reapproaching these shows with fresh eyes. And maybe sometimes it's the spaceships and the action, and other times it's the the character interactions or the politics of the philosophy of the show. What about you? Obviously, those things are a part of it, and and I think it's a lot of it for a lot of people. For me, just thinking back now viscerally, uh, the idea that smart people could be thinking their way through problems I thought was interesting. And then the contrast to no matter how smart you are and no matter how moral and how much you're thinking, sometimes you must do battle. And that was always an interesting uh, goalpost of the series for me. It's You can be a genius astrophysicist who cares nothing more than to maintain the peace, and yet you may still have to fire your phasers and your photon torpedoes. And when does that red line get crossed <laughs> interesting so your uncle introduces you to the original series was it the kind of thing that you were able to eventually watch it and go okay well these are my favorites and these not so much I mean is there a particular one or was it just wow you know and just like absorbing the whole thing like is there is there well I guess when you were a kid and then you know flash forward to now what are the particular episodes of the original series that kind of uh, that kind of carry those messages for you I'm just, balance of terror really sticks out in my mind as sort of a mix of exploration and meeting a new race and how you're going to deal with it. Uh, obviously, the time travel episodes always blew my mind. You know, letting Joan Collins die is still seared into my psyche. Uh, anytime that they tackled, uh, you know, at the time, I thought they were all sort of mind-blowing. Even meeting Greek gods on a planet to me was just a, a, an incredible mashup of, of ideas. 
Uh, and then obviously as you get older and you revisit, then, then the favorites start to come out. But at the time it was just so, so not anything you'd ever seen. And even, even at the time for me as a kid, uh, you know, I probably saw it around the same time that Star Wars was coming out. And I remember vividly thinking, okay, Star Wars is, is amazing, but I can't watch it at home. You know, I can watch Star Trek at home. And so there was a, an element of it also just being just ubiquitous and, and, and having so many episodes of it. It seemed sort of like an endless resource of, of ideas and sci-fi. I just remember thinking, wow, this is a whole universe, whereas Star Wars seemed like a one-off, you know? What are the strengths and weaknesses of Star Trek? You know, whether you approach it as a fan or approach it as a writer, you know, you're given this sort of set of rules, some vaguely defined, some very well defined. You know, you just hit on something that I thought was was very funny. You know, there's a line in um, Star Trek 2009 where Pike says Starfleet is what a uh, a peacekeeping armada mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so two two ideas which are uh, uh, <laughs> potentially uh, canceling each other out mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you know are, are these the kinds of things that are are difficult to wrap your head around uh, maybe when you approach it as writing something new you you at least have to have in your head the idea of the rules of Starfleet, the rules of what they're capable of doing or not capable of doing. So, Well, the idea of the, Starf- the peacekeeping armada is very much by design. Uh, as I said, one of the things that struck me early on about Star Trek was the idea of peacekeepers who sometimes have to get involved in space battle. And, you know, I think that's very much a debate and a, a reflection of what we're all going through even again right now you know we've been going through it for for a long time but it's in particular sort of uh sticking out right now in in relation to whether or not we're going to go into syria etc so 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 though that sounds like an oxymoron it's purposeful Mm -hmm. uh and the purpose is, is so so knowing those rules uh you want to be mindful of for me anyway uh I think I've talked about the first movie, Kirk and Spock were sort of Bush and Obama. (laughs) Uh, Spock is Obama, Kirk is Bush. Uh, And then obviously in Into Darkness, you're seeing a play out of when do we, you know, when do we preemptively attack or not? Uh, And so you asked, you know, what is it? Is that a challenge for me? Since that was always in my mind from early on. Uh, I rather I, I sort of embrace that challenge. I, I like ruminating on when's when's the right time to throw a punch and when isn't it, and and that to me has always been it's kind of at the center of at the of the friendship between Kirk and Spock and Bones. It's it's what's the debate and what what will we rule? How how will Kirk rule at the end? What will he decide to do? And Will it be in the interest of peace or in the interest of of aggression? And sometimes aggression, you know, not to be a total one-sided, aggression sometimes is necessary and necessary to maintain the peace. Some things are worth fighting for. And so what are those things? Let me ask you, 
so we talk about the fact that you know as a writer uh, approaching star trek you have to know you know sort of the rules of star trek you have to know some of the ideas and yes you get to play with them but you got to know some of that um let's step back from a sec for a second and just <sighs> was there any part of you that was like i don't want to I mean, I mean, this is big, and you know that. You know that you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, certainly you've had a, a bit of interaction with fans. No doubt. Are you kidding? I, I didn't want to touch it. Um, eight months before we said yes, we got a call from Paramount, uh, a great executive over there who's a friend of ours, Mark Evans, who said, hey, you guys want to do Star Trek? Would you be interested? In it? And it's like, yeah, we're interested, but we're not. I don't want to come and screw it up, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to mess with something that I love so I don't know you know unless we have an idea I'm not just we're not just going to say yes so cut to eight months later and we had an idea and it wasn't until then that ultimately what made us say yes is like well clearly Paramount is serious about redoing this and they're going to hire someone to screw it up (laughs) so so it might as well be me and my cohorts and you know started to look at it as like a call to duty like okay look Star Trek has called me and I'm going to serve and I'll do my best and if I fail uh, I will have failed with all good intentions but we were not going to take it on cynically Uh, I, I considered it a cultural treasure from minute one and you know, don't curate cultural treasures in a precious museum if you don't know what you're doing. And and we decided, okay, I think we have we have enough of a of a strong instinct here that that I can compare to other things I've heard and say to someone with a straight face, you know, put me in the game, coach. And that's what we did. Let me ask you. You said earlier that one of the things that appealed to you about Star Trek when you were a kid was that you could watch it at home, whereas Star Wars, you went to the movies. You know. I don't know about you, but the first time I saw Star Wars, I thought, I'm never going to see anything like this again because I was, you know, seven and I didn't realize that there would be Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, well, we can we could stop there if you want to. But I guess I guess what I'm wondering is (laughs) there was a question that was asked a few years ago at the uh, at the Star Trek convention by by one of the uh, moderators. Um, I guess I could name him. That would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? It was Larry Nemechek. The question was, uh, does Star Trek need to be on TV? And I guess what I want to ask you is, I mean, obviously, again, Paramount was going to make movies, so why wouldn't you, you know, be part of it, especially if you felt like you could do a decent job with it or a good job with it? Would you rather write for Star Trek on television or would you rather write for Star Trek in the movies? And does Star Trek need to be back on TV? It's funny, you know, uh, my writing partner and I started in television. And at the time, we were on these syndicated shows, Hercules, Legendary Journeys, and Xena, Warrior Princess. Mm -hmm. And there was a real... Uh, snobbery from the film community and from even the network community about syndicated TV. Cut to present day where the line between TV and film is so blurred and and some of the best writing is on TV and, and cable. And so to answer your question, I do think Star Trek is is wonderful for TV. I think it should be both. Uh, I don't and I remember thinking during some of the movies, um, I, I've had the feeling where I watch, uh, for example, a Next Generation movie, I won't say which, uh, just not to isolate it, but where I loved it. But I also thought, oh, you know what? It, it, it slightly succumbed to the trappings of movie making. Mm-hmm. It became a lot of action and not enough philosophy. I remember thinking that myself. And it's interesting to read that, that criticism of some of the stuff that we've done in the last two. 
um, which TV affords you a little bit for sure because you're arcing out these characters, you know, over 22 episodes if you're lucky a, a season. Mm-hmm. But I do think that audiences are sophisticated enough that that Star Trek can be Star Trek in both mediums now. Um, well, and maybe let's consider a third medium, which is online. Uh, you know, Star Trek is it, it ain't going anywhere. Uh, it's gonna outlive all of us, and and it's gonna be translated into into every kind of uh, delivery system you can imagine. Uh, and TV, uh, it's not going away from TV either. It just depends on you know when it comes back and how it how it's programmed against the movies. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, we're we're talking about it very seriously and as something that will endure. Um, why why in the world is it that important? You know, I mean, is this entertainment or is it something more? And if it is something more, what is that thing that that we're getting out of it? They the characters in Star Trek are now cultural archetypes. They are, I think, as ingrained into parts of our culture as some Shakespearean characters and that is because they represent elemental personifications of our nature Uh, I'm not saying anything anyone who's listening to this doesn't know but emotion versus logic um, leap before before you look versus planning ahead these are all like basic things that we all struggle with and they were these elemental characteristics of human nature were put in a an incredible package of a gorgeous starship <laughs> you know uh checking things out all over the place who doesn't want to do that so it, it just happens to be a, a part of our culture and a part of our psyche when it was born i think was a big part of it uh transformational moment in our culture in terms of the 60s i think i've talked about this before the idea of kirk being a reminder for kennedy five years after his death. Uh, Kennedy, who struggled himself with, what's the red line? Uh, A cold warrior who turned to peace during his tenure. A guy who was not afraid to fight and yet kept us out of the Cuban Missile Crisis, kept us out of Bay of Pigs, kept us, kept, uh, tried to keep us out of war and had to fight to do so and probably died to do so. That was just ringing in our ears when Star Trek came out. It was a, 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 a fantasy of the continuation of, a, of Camelot, in my mind. I think, I think that's partly why it was seared into a lot of brains. It was therapy for the country, and, and it was a what-if scenario of what if Camelot had continued. So I'm guessing then that for you personally, you'd rather write for something that is either the original series or a reboot of the original series as opposed to something that is next gen or a reboot of that. Because, I mean, the cool thing about the original series is you just get to write on out, you know, whereas 100 years later with with next gen, you're dealing with sort of a more mature. I don't want to go so far as to say middle aged because we're only talking about 100 (laughs) years later, but you're dealing with a much more mature, you know, organization and a much more mature set of ideas. Uh, you know, I got I, I, I to say I'm torn about that because I, I really loved Next Generation. It was, it was still my, it's still my favorite show that I was able to watch in real time mm-hmm. in terms of when it was on when, you know, I was watching new episodes as they came out. Right. And it was of my time. You know, I, I, I'm, if I had been of age to watch 
the original series, I'm sure I would have felt differently. But Next Generation happened. It's sort of like the guys who like Roger Moore instead of uh, instead of Sean Connery as James <laughs> Bond. You know, that's me too. Yeah, just because he was of my time. Uh, so no, I'd, I'd I'd say there's. In fact, I'm hoping with the next movie that that we can sort of get back to square one and, and sort of say that these characters are now who, who you always knew them as and, and they've been maturing in these two movies and let's see where they go in the next one. But I, 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 would, I wouldn't mind writing for either. I think the, the principles still apply. You know, what's nice about the original series, obviously, is that that was the, that was the first uh, few members of the band and that's the band that culture remembers the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's nice to play with cultural icons that everyone knows, so that you, you're not spending time uh, doing anything other than than taking these icons into the situations they should be into that are interesting. And so it's it's just nice to have a broad palette that way that everyone understands. That's not to say that the mature themes of Next Generation aren't aren't super fun. I mean, I it's it's interesting to read the different criticisms of different shows and 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 having some people say well next generation was so utopian and this and that and which i loved you know i used to dream about being you know on the enterprise with picard and you know families and soccer games and you know <laughs> all the stuff that they had on that ship that they didn't have on the original ship uh both both are appealing the the drama of the conflict of the 60s that the original series represents is obviously obviously appeals to me because I like a good fight but hey who doesn't like a, a utopian thing where where your where exploration is truly the 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 word of the day and conflict comes out of that so how do you approach then whether whether it's as a writer or just as a fan finding that balance between action and conflict versus drama you know human drama emotional drama and the the sort of philosophical underpinnings. Of start. We always start with the philosophical and the character. And if we have a theme and a character dynamic that we know is going to rule the day, and we believe in it, and we know, okay, that's that's a worthy character dynamic, and that's a worthy character story, and that's a worthy theme. If we believe we have that, then we try and pack as much action into that as we can, and try to tell it through through action. So, first movie is Kirk and Spock it's Lennon and McCartney coming together and we very much I think I've talked about this based sort of uh, a little bit of what they went through on Lennon and McCartney's actual experience there were two opposites who both lost a parent early on and as a result of that loss were able to understand each other in a way that they might not have been able to since they were so different and that's what we did with Kirk and Spock in Star Trek 09 and and so two opposites coming together to take each other farther than they could ever take each other, that is a, a worthy enough theme for us that then it's like, okay, now let's pack it in. Because we know that's what's happening every moment. No matter what's going on, that's the story that's being told. And I think the pace of the movies sometimes, I think, leaves people to have to watch it again a little bit to see the, what the theme is because it, it, they do go by fast and they do, they do have a lot of sound and fury. <laughs> But, but behind them is, is, is this theme. And in the second one, obviously, the themes of preemptive war, uh, war at a distance, justice, rule of law, 
um, and and two friends realizing that they're friends. Uh, those things permeate all the action for me. Uh, but we always start there. We always like to say, if you can make an independent movie out of your theme and your character dynamic, that's how you know you have it. If you can't make an independent movie out of it, don't do it. But once you have that theme, then you add the space battles and the giant robots and the aliens and the this and that. But you have to start with that central theme. Can you help us to understand then how, um, you know, you say that you approach this starting with the, the character, the emotional core, the philosophical core, and then build the movie around that. Um, help us and our audience understand, you know, what part of Star Trek 09, Star Trek Into Darkness are your fingerprints and either your co-writers or JJ. Um, I'll give you an example, uh, like Man of Steel, uh, a movie that I enjoyed um, on a lot of levels. I felt like you could almost pull the scenes out that had Christopher Nolan's thumbprint <laughs> and then the other scenes that had Zack Snyder's thumbprint. Hmm. It's a little more difficult to do with Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious your take on that. What of your ideas specifically are front and center where and when? And then how does that get altered or expanded upon when it actually goes in front of the camera? Well, in the 09 movie, we didn't say yes until Alex and I, you know, he, Alex and I have been writing together for 23 years, holy. <laughs> um, so when my first wife and I, Alex, uh, we didn't say yes until we hit upon the notion of what if Spock is portrayed by Leonard Nimoy is some way indirectly responsible for coming back in time and changing the universe and making it an alternate universe. And the question becomes, are these people's souls the same? Uh, I remember reading, well, I can't get into the new structure because it's not really my character. It's not the same people and our response to that is well that's actually the debate of the movie are they the same souls Hmm. and we don't want you to come to the movie to rely on your previous love they have to earn your love these characters anew and certainly for a new audience who doesn't know Star Trek these these characters must stand on their own so that was sort of the central idea that Alex and I brought to to Star Trek 09 and then we went and pitched it to Nimoy and he said well I'll read a script let's see what happens but it sounds intriguing (laughs) Um, and in our minds, if, if he had said no, we would have been nowhere. I didn't, I, I personally couldn't stand, be, I didn't have another idea for how to do 09. If that hadn't worked, I, I might have had to step back because it had to preserve canon while freeing us from canon at the same time. And it had to use the rules of Star Trek to do it. And absent that, I, I didn't, I, I would have been phone, I would have been faking it. So that was our fingerprints on 09. We roughed out the story and then, then we all get in a room, me and JJ and Brian Burke and, and Damon, who was a producer on the first one. And then you start adding jokes and then, you know, a lot of the humor, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the humor comes from JJ. He, he, he loved Keenzer. Big hands was his idea. <laughs> um, uh, things like that. He, 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 he adds a lightness to it. Uh, so we sort of set up the Christmas tree and then and then the whole family decorates it. Cool. And, and that's literally what you do at Christmas is uh, you <laughs> set up the tree and JJ comes over to decorate it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. It's annoying when he puts his picture on top of the tree, though. Oh, it's that's, like, that's it's so obnoxious. Yeah. That's really, 
really inappropriate. Um, well, so then th- this leads me into the idea of um, I, I want you to kind of take us through the story development then. Star Trek 09 ends, it, your, your process on that ends. The movie comes out and it's mostly very well received and you know what, before it comes out that then you're going to start work on the sequel? Okay. I don't. Uh, Paramount seem to have a strong opinion, but yeah. we have a rule of never counting your sequels before they hatch. Sure. And, and I like to see what what the what the response is from people who see the movie, uh, and see what works and what doesn't. So we never we never engage in anything until it's out. Okay. So so sometimes soon. But after, we knew there was an appetite for it. Right. Okay. So sometimes soon after that movie is out, you start to work on the the sequel yes. on Into Darkness. Can you kind of walk us through that process of like breaking that story, where the ideas came from? What was the original premise? I, I had read somewhere that Khan was sort of put in later. So I just want to get a picture of how it all came together. So, okay. So when we were doing the 091, we can't help but a couple of nights fantasize about a sequel. And we always talked about that the sequel should be WOK, The Wrath of Kirk. And actually, we talked about this before we'd even written Fade Out on the first script. The second movie could be Wrath of Kirk somehow. And we toyed with having a sort of coda at the end of the 09 movie of maybe Starfleet finding the Botany Bay. So Khan was in our minds. Now, the movie comes out. Suddenly it's all real. We're not messing around anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We get together and there is a push from some of the contingent to do Khan and to do... uh, uh, a, a very concentric story from the beginning. In fact, I think we were sort of playing with the idea of hearts of darkness with Khan, the idea that you, we were sent to to some place to catch this guy, Khan, who this or that, who was found in an alternate situation. We collectively stepped back from that because we felt like we were falling into the trap of using a villain based on previous knowledge of a villain and that we were somehow relying on the audience's expectation and love or hate of Khan to make that story work. And so we stepped back and, and we said, let's say it's not Khan. Let's just, let's just, what's a story? What's just like a story with a villain that's got his own situation that doesn't rely ever on anything? Uh, and actually in the original version, we were calling him Robert April. I wanted him to be a, mm. a, a, like a, mis, a mislead. And so we generated the story of it's a guy who has been used by Starfleet and he's mad and he's, 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 uh, he's turned towards terrorism and we have to go get him. And when we find him, he tells us that he's been abused, that he's slightly a victim of, uh, of the national security apparatus and he's actually got a somewhat of a case and there's a cancer within Starfleet and et cetera, et cetera. You know, all a story you can pitch without saying anyone's name prior Mm. and then once we had that story then it became well now can it be Khan (laughs) (laughs) so we started a Khan went away from Khan and then came back to him uh, uh, because the the story that we generated seemed seemed to benefit a little bit from okay he's got a secret identity you didn't know who he was really okay well if we're going to play secret identity game why not have it be this guy? And not only that, he, they're using him for nefarious purposes because he's got a mind that this and that. That's 
he seems better than us. So suddenly, Khan fit into the story that we were telling. We didn't reverse engineer a story to fit in Khan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's interesting to, to read some loud criticism of that decision. Uh, but I think, and, and some of the criticism is literally saying, you relied on knowing Khan. My response to that is, it might seem that way to you if you know Khan, but uh, if you don't know who he is, the movie is a self-contained story. Uh, the movie explains itself, and it does not rely on you loving Khan before. But I can see how, if you're a fan, it, you have to. It, it's hard to unsee something, and it's hard to stare at something uh, uh, fresh if you have such a, you know, such a. Uh, uh, a connection to previous Star Trek, which, which I do as well. Yeah. Um, but I have to serve uh, a broader audience than just us, and I was trying to do. We were trying to do both, and hopefully for many we succeeded. I got to say, um, hard though this is going to be to believe for people listening to this show. I I actually saw the movie with somebody who came with almost no knowledge of Star Trek. I mean, she was aware that there was this franchise called Star Trek and that it had been on TV <laughs> and in movies. What? And probably that there were toys, but she couldn't. I mean, she could name Kirk and Spock. She might have been able to name McCoy. And past that, she's got no knowledge of Star Trek. Uh-huh. She was, she was uh, engaged completely, uh-huh. which was, um, I'm not saying that to, you know, to say, well, I mean, way to go. But, you know, I mean, it, it did that. It did not rely on your knowledge of Kirk. I would, I mean, Khan, excuse me, for people who are coming to it fresh. And I think a lot of, a lot of people who might get in a, in a fight with you about it um, don't understand that there are, in fact, people who are coming to Star Trek fresh. Right. I, I think that's right. And I think, and, and, and I blame them no less, though, for the conscious dissonance of, of seeing a character that you know and it's different and, and I, I understand thinking well you were relying on us knowing who he is if, if you really pitched a story to yourself I, I think you'll find out that that's not the case what well, did you guys talk about those risks uh, as you were building the story and putting Khan in I mean the, the, there had to have been some it was some a, understanding lo- it was yeah. long debates you yeah. know I, I held out for a while mm-hmm. um because uh, I thought, well, we have a story that works anyway. But, you know, ultimately the idea was, well, you can't do Batman without the Joker, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and so that, that, was, that argument sort of won the day. And we all finally unanimously decided, you know what, it's, it, 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 given with the story we're telling, if, if we don't say it's con, people are going to say, oh, it's just a con light ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> right. So kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. But absolutely, we debated it, and we knew it would be tricky. We knew it would be uh, it would lead to a a, a vocal uh, outcry from some fans. But you know, we you got to make tough decisions when you're when you're doing something like this. Uh, we don't have the option of some of the original actors, and we have to keep going. Let me ask you. I I want to. I've been a vociferous defender of In the Darkness, and I'm not saying that to, you know, to get in good with you or anything like that, but I have been. And I'll you know, also say there are parts of the movie that I don't like, but, you know, welcome to life among the living. Um, the thing that I like about the movie is it seems to... You guys ran a risk 
I mean, this is a message movie. And I think some people get so angry about the way that things were treated in the movie. Like, oh, Khan is English now instead of Mexican when, you know, he's supposed to be Mexican. Um, okay, yeah. I mean, there, there are people who I think are getting so, like, tied up in, in the, the parts that they don't like about it that they can't step back and say, this is, I mean, th- th- this movie came not only with a, with a serious message, but a message that if a lot of people picked up on it right away would be an unpopular message among a lot of people, both in this country and around the world. Was there any fear about getting too messagey in the movie? Because I walked away from it thinking, wow, I mean, that's, I mean, that feels, that feels ballsy to take, you know, what is obviously not only a tentpole for the summer, but something that, you know, Paramount's rolling the dice for a hundred at this point, 50 years in a couple of years is kind of cool, but they're looking, you know, they're looking for at least a hundred, I'm guessing. And then, and then to come out with this thing that really could alienate a lot of people seems like, I mean, that was an incredible roll of the dice. I mean, from the writer's point of view, that being you and your, and your partners, from the director's point of view, from the studio's point of view. I mean, was, the, was there concern that you might be going a little too, oh, I don't know, Star Trek with the whole thing? Uh, no, actually. Uh, I think in terms of all of our partners and stuff, I think the message was disguised enough that, that, uh, that, no one thought to object in a timely fashion <laughs> for me uh you know I, d- I definitely thought about it uh I, I just turned 40 so I, as i get older i get braver and maybe stupider and so i kind of was like you know this is this is what star trek is for you know if, if i if we can't uh be protected by the power of star trek to try and say something of meaning then i don't know what i'm doing in this business so for me, it was, I couldn't, I couldn't actually not do it. So it, I couldn't, I had to, I had to push this agenda. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had to try and, and, and make this a debate about what's going on. And, and I got to hide behind the fact that fans were asking for it. They, you know, one of the criticisms of the first movie was that it didn't have enough, you know, moral dilemmas and quandaries and philosophical discussions. And, and so I was like, okay. Let's 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 dance, <laughs> um, and and I think you're right that I think a lot of people did. Not a lot of people. I think some people are uh, confused and put off by something that is so slightly topical. You know, I do think that it's. It, I got a lot of uh, uh, on the on the message boards where obviously you get a very vocal. A group of detractors that may not may or may not represent uh, huge percentages, but nonetheless, they're fans and they need to be heard. And they were like, "I don't want to face those things when I'm eating popcorn in the theater." Uh, and though they meant it as a criticism, I I actually still take that as a compliment. It means that that they sat through a popcorn movie that 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 shook them up a little bit. And yeah, that's hard to do. You know, it's that's it's only because uh, of the legacy and the power of star trek that we were able to to actually have this meditation on current events kind of kind of goes back to what you always say of uh people who say well i like star trek but not with all the star trek in it yeah i was going to say one of my favorite lines comes from you i like star trek except for the space parts right (laughs) right you I, i see versions of that criticism you know a lot uh it's it's interesting and look i get it like you definitely go to the movies to escape, but 
you can still you can escape and still think you know you don't i think the the movie can be entertaining and and still have something to say sorry that's what star wars is for <laughs> rod rod and better everybody yeah good, good, good yeah good thank you rod normally i keep my silence but uh... you know <laughs> we, you know i actually said that i actually said that during the npr interview that rod and i did and they cut it out and i, I, was, I was so wishing that they would leave that line in oh. like, you know, if you, if you can't, can't face this stuff if you can't you know talk about messages morals and meanings go watch star wars it, it, the the line lives again good i'm, I'm glad we're gonna keep it alive Good. Um, let's talk about that criticism uh, because I, going from Star Trek 09 into into darkness, you guys actually incorporated uh, some of that criticism, yes. that feedback, um, specifically about Kirk's quick ascent Correct. Uh, to being captain. So you you address that. Uh, what else did you address? Yeah. So first, yes, we addressed uh, we addressed. Kirk's quick ascension and, mm-hmm. and made a point of it that everyone thought that in the in the universe itself and that's why he's demoted. We addressed the brewery and uh, <laughs> went to San Francisco and got a, a proper warp core. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. nice. We um, attempted to uh, continue to sort of grow the trifecta of, uh, of Bones being in there. We made Scotty a little bit less humorous. He actually had not less humorous. He's just as funny, but gave him uh, uh, meat to chew on. You know, he resigns over weaponry and over the Enterprise's mission not being about exploration and being sort of a military mission. We definitely took in what some fans said and, and incorporated into the story. What do you think will be the takeaways from the criticism of Into Darkness that will push you forward into the next one? I am hoping that these two movies have earned us a degree of freedom to go a little bit more sci-fi. And I know that's a dirty word for a lot of studios. Uh, In the first two movies, Paramount has been great in terms of them just trusting all of us and what we want to do. You know, I I read a lot of criticism like, oh, you must be following the Paramount formula, the checklist of the thing of their, <laughs> they're telling you what to do and all this stuff. They've been nothing but trusting and, and great. You know, any, sadly in this case, for better or worse, you can't blame the evil studio for whatever you hate about these movies. You've got to blame us. <laughs> so don't, don't blame the corporation for once. And I love blaming corporations. <laughs> but in this case, it's not the case. Uh, nonetheless, I am privy to a lot of their research that that uh, you know about the trappings of sci-fi and you know and they say women don't like sci-fi and you, you can't really get into deep space because people like to see Earth in the trailers like there's all kinds of stuff like that 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 trickles into your mind. My hope is that these movies have earned us the right to to show another side of Star Trek that we have not fully shown yet, and there there's so many sides to it. I think the the, the first two movies that we've done represent in my mind, a lot of the things that I loved about Star Trek. No one story will represent everything about any franchise that's been around for 50 years. I hope that the third movie, we can tell another side of it and have not only some of the things we've seen, but also a genuine sci-fi mystery. You know, I think that would be, that'd be nice. Have you been to a Star Trek convention? I haven't. 
Really? I've never been to a Star Trek convention. Because the thing that you just mentioned about uh, the, the studio not understanding possibly the audience, women don't like sci-fi, that is the core audience. You go to a science fiction convention, especially now when I think the demographic has changed after the 09 movie a little bit, women have always been a significant portion I of agree. That I've argued this with them, and I, yeah. I remember when I was watching Next Generation in high school, Half of my sort of peer group that we watched together were were girls. Yeah, and and so when I heard that research, I was like, "What?" But half my friends who watched *Next Generation* were girls. So I, I think *Star Trek* is maybe um, unique in that way, and and I think I, I'm not invalidating their research, but I don't I, I don't I think when it comes to *Star Trek*, it's it's a slightly different picture. Mm-hmm. I agree. With that freedom, and forgive me, maybe you haven't even started thinking about it, although probably you did halfway through writing Into Darkness. We're actually going to start <laughs> pitching you stories now. God so. bless you. I need something. <laughs> well, I, what I was going to ask, actually, is do you feel like for the next one, if you, given your druthers, assuming, okay, so you've got carte blanche at this point, you've obviously got some stuff that comes with the franchise, namely, you know, the Enterprise, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, all the characters. <laughs> but the thing that happens next... If you get to do whatever you want to do, does that reference something that happened in, you know, 66 to 69, 68, 69? Or is this, you know, is this a brand new everything as far as you're concerned? Well, first of all, I'm open to you guys opine. Uh, part of me, the, the, the guiding principle of the first two, movie was, first two movies was that though it is an alternate universe, uh, much is the same. It's almost a it's a harmonization with canon is the way we thought of it. So, for example, Kirk and Spock meeting during the Kobayashi Maru scenario. In my mind, that's something that could have happened in both continuities. That might have exactly been how Kirk and Spock met. I don't know. Uh, there there are a couple of things that I thought could have been the same and yet slightly different. Same with Into Darkness. You know the Botany Bay's out there, but this time the Enterprise didn't find it. Somebody else found it. We've done that twice now. So I think there is a case to be made. My gut at this moment is there's a case to be made. And one last thing before I make the case. Uh, And part of being a fan that I always thought was fun about Star Trek was that I'm certainly not uh, the biggest uh, expert on Star Trek. There's thousands and thousands of fans who know what I know and who whose opinion about what should happen next may be just as valid as mine. And it's based on past references. And so I think part of the fun of the Star Trek home game, as I call it, (laughs) is that part of the reason we wanted to harmonize with canon and to try and use some familiar elements is to allow fans the way I'd want to be allowed to be uh, if I was watching this from the outside, to play the home game and imagine what we might do next given the elements that we all have access to. We've done that twice now, so I think my gut at this moment is the third one, uh, and this is slightly based on some fan response, that the third one just should be unpredictable and you just don't, you know, that that as many new elements as possible is probably the, the rule of the day. However, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. If there's some something that comes up from previous episodes that is an idea that just just fits beautifully on the Christmas tree then don't shy away from it. You know, it's a very nonspecific answer, but that's, that's where my feelings are at this moment. 
Ken, I know what you're thinking, which is uh, the third movie should be a return to the Miri planet. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah if you can I have it take place, if you can have it take place on earth, but not earth, that's always an excellent way to start an episode. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. A movie, which, what did I say? Oh, well. They're interchangeable now in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an episode is a movie and a movie is an episode. Well, at, at what point though, do you stop listening to fan criticism? And I mean, criticism, good or bad, you know, I, I mean, I, I read the boards, too, and I know that you do. And I know that things just got heated on uh, on one of the boards. Um, but I, I go in there as a fan who is not a Star Trek writer. And I go, this is a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea. And we went through the same thing when Enterprise ended and there was no movie on there. Well, they should have done this. They should have done this. Um, you, you know, I, I guess you, you're lucky in that your writing style is to be collaborative with the other writers and with your director. But, you know, at, at what point do you just go, okay, well, well, we accepted this idea, but we just can't go down this other direction. And, and if the fans aren't happy or if a contingent of fans aren't happy, so be it. Um, I never stop reading or, or listening. One of the rules we have is one of the skills we've learned as writers is when you get a note from an executive, they don't necessarily always articulate the exact problem that they have. They're articulating. The audience is never wrong. Let's start there. Hmm. The audience is never wrong. If they articulate something, you have to listen. What they articulate specifically may not be what they're really meaning to articulate. So the phrase we use is you're always trying to find the note behind the note. Uh, you can't take suggestions too literally. What you're trying to find out is what are they feeling and what are they responding to that's making them feel that way and can you address that some way that still uh, uh, conforms to what you're trying to do. And so never stop listening to, to, to the note behind the note. Uh, in terms of specific suggestions, you know, it, it's, it's, it's rare for us to... to say that's it you know uh we 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 tr the way we do it is we kind of try and find out what our instinct is first obviously we take in the lessons of the movie we read the criticism we hide for a while we come up with an instinct of what we think should happen next and then we go back into the pool and see what arguments uh might invalidate what our instinct is and if the instinct survives all the bows and arrows and cannonballs that exist then it stands and if it doesn't then we go back to the drawing board hide out come up with our instinct and then come out and and crash it against opinion it's sort of our process can i ask so uh, there are a couple of things uh, hooks i almost want to call them in in the darkness in particular and i'm trying to figure out are they there so that people understand okay well it's a different universe but it's the same one or are they there to sort of dispense with them? I mean, things like uh, the ship that they take to go to the Klingon homeworld was, was acquired in the Mud incident. Okay, well, obviously, <laughs> we're not going to meet Harry Mudd for the first time now, and maybe we're not going to meet him. Maybe, maybe we're sort of, you know, like winking and nodding to the people who are, are go as far back as the original series. Or are, are you saying, all right, so, so that's off the table now. And then the Tribbles, we've had, you know, kind of a couple of times now, so we're not going to have our first run-in with Tribbles. So, so that's kind of off the table now. Or are they just sort of like, yeah, yeah, no, I know it's different, but don't worry. I mean, we know you too. I mean, which which are those? Or 
Is it just, you know, you, you won't go wrong, you know? There are jokes that we all tell over and over again because they're comfortable. Which, which part are those kinds of things? Well, it's not eliminating anything. Uh, and in the mud incident, we're referring to an element of the comic books in which you didn't meet Harry Mudd either. You met his daughter. Oh. So you could still meet Mud for the first time. <laughs> so it's not about uh, eliminating anything. It's about you, you, know, you, you, you have in the back of your mind, if you're a Trek fan, some of the things that are popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're a Trek fan who happens to have been in this business and studying audiences and all that kind of stuff, you, you kind of have a, a top 10, 20 list of, of things that you know that if you mention them, a general audience may, may be slightly aware. Like you were saying, you took a friend who knows Kirk and Spock, maybe McCoy, probably knows the shape of the Enterprise, a couple things. You keep those things in the back of your mind and... And then as you're pursuing a story that doesn't rely on those things, if suddenly you see a place to stick one of those things in there, you do it. <laughs> and you do it um, for fun. You do it as a, you know, if you're, if you're using a sort of a musical analogy, it's a little sampling of a riff, you know, in, in your song. And, and, you know, don't, you don't have to be reinventing the wheel every second. If something from Star Trek fits, by all means, use it. It's called Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to approach something about uh, Space Seed um, because there, there's uh, a, a moment where uh, Kirk says that he admires Khan and uh, Spock is a little put off by this. He doesn't get a guy's a, a, a despot, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but, but Kirk says he kind of, he kind of gets it in, in a way. Um, and in Star Trek Into Darkness, Khan is the bad guy, but we build empathy for him, particularly in the uh, scene in the brig. Um, so dig a little deeper in, into Khan, you know, your, your thought on the character, on creating a bad guy who's not necessarily a bad guy. And I'm interested in, was this kind of... A, throwing the audience for a little bit of a loop that we, we've established Marcus as a bad guy, but then we have this uneasy alliance with Khan. Is the audience meant to keep guessing as to whose side he'll eventually end up on? Well, let's start with Khan. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with Ricardo Montalban, who had a genuine bone to pick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had a good case. He, he was left to die in the wrong place and he was understandably pissed Kirk and company really did shaft the guy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so so the origin of, a, of, of Star Trek's greatest villain is indeed rooted in uh, not simply pure evil but on someone who was genuinely wronged and who was a victim of a system so starting there uh we wanted to continue that and make it even potentially more gray. <laughs> um, villains are only, they say that movies are only as interesting as your villain. That's sort of a, you know, you're only as good as your best villain. And, and sometimes the best villain is very clearly evil. And the opposite extreme of that is sometimes your best villain is someone who could be you. Uh, if you were in that situation. So we very purposely wanted to empathize with Khan to the point where you could even argue that 
he might not have gone totally against Kirk if Kirk hadn't had Scotty stun him at the end. In a way, Kirk betrays him first. Mm. You know, so you can't say that he was simply pure evil. It's like I help you take the ship and then you shoot me. You know, and it's like okay, that's it. I've had it with you people. Um, Khan in our movie is uh, a mirror to our own uh, dark impulses. He uh, he is he's a victim of Starfleet. He's a victim of of being used for nefarious purposes to start war and and I think that's confusing to some uh, but you know as Kirk says at the end of the movie you know the movie's about let us not, not let our desire for vengeance or retribution you know make us do things that aren't consistent with our values uh, and it's why Khan doesn't die at the end of this movie he is indeed uh, now frozen and ready for trial. <laughs> uh, in con- in, 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 consistent with uh, intergalactic law. Uh, and so inspired by the original con, we wanted to have uh, a, a villain who seems like a villain at first and then when you get to understand him, you realize it's not so simple. Um, villains are as much villains as they are victims of their circumstance in a lot of cases please do not make the third movie the trial of Khan <laughs> we will end this interview now <laughs> comics we got that in the comics oh okay okay all right Good. you don't want a legal drama for Star no, Trek 3 well, 13 just, whatever just, no no all right Spock's a good lawyer yeah well I bet he would be I bet he would be well let's talk about that uh that final Kirk speech because I mean Ken you mentioned it earlier and I know that this is the thing that you really um, celebrate and identify with in the movie Yeah, uh, is Kirk's Kirk's impassioned plea to not do the easy thing but to do the right thing um, and, and I, I think Ken you can speak to this better than I can about that being actually the heart of the prime directive as opposed to don't mess with this culture yeah, I don't. I mean, personally, I'm not. And this is something that I've sort of come to. Like, I came to Star Trek again. I mean, really, I mean, I've always been a fan, obviously, and I always watched it. And like you, Next Gen was my was my Star Trek. Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah, absolutely. But um, I've come to sort of appreciate the Prime Directive, as John says, not 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 for the fact that we don't we don't screw with other cultures, but but for the fact that we don't we've set up a code for ourselves. This is who we say we are. And and so now when we get there and, you know, there's something going wrong that we could very easily fix or, you know, there's something that we just don't like about a culture, which is not a lesson that, you know, Kirk had in the first, I guess, season and a half of Star Trek, but he sort of comes to later as far as the prime directive is concerned. I mean, it's really just about sort of living up to your code. And I loved the Kirk speech at the end of End of Darkness because it was a it was a Kirk speech. It was the it was the Corbomite maneuver speech. It was, you know. It was, hey, guess what? This is going to suck, but this is who we say we are, and this is what we say we're going to do. <laughs> is that what the prime directive is for you, or are you sort of like, yeah, no, if we see a guy with a broken leg, too bad for him because I can't get involved? I mean, it, I mean, what, what is the prime directive as far as you're concerned? Is it, I mean, is it, is it an important thing as far as letting cultures grow on their own? Is it an important plot device in Star Trek? Is it, what does it stand in for, or does it stand for exactly what they say it stands for? 
That's interesting. I think you're, I think you're pointing out uh, something that we maybe did, I think, slightly unconsciously because I hadn't, I hadn't taken it to that literal level of, of analyzing the movie in terms of, in a way, the traditional prime directive that we know from Star Trek of not allowing an, uh, a pre-warp culture to perceive the size of the universe and uh, other life forms you're right in a way we replaced it thematically with let's not let's not violate our values let's not uh let's not <laughs> you know preemptively go to war etc um which is in a sense in a literal sense sort of a subset of the prime directive uh in terms of don't interfere with other cultures if you don't have to um but i think you're right i think in a way the movie sets up the idea of a supreme law that shouldn't be violated and Kirk violates it for peaceful purposes to save his friend uh, and yet he won't cross this other line even when he's got orders uh, in a way making it make, in a way superseding the prime directive in his mind obviously given his behavior so that's interesting I hadn't, I hadn't taken it to that literal level but I think that's right I think what appeals to me about it is the real prime directive is because we can all root for Kirk when he saves a culture. We can all root for the Enterprise when they violate the prime directive to do right. And he says to Spock, look, I, what I did was technically wrong and morally right. And then you sold me out. Um, and now here you are asking me not to follow my orders uh, and execute Khan, um, but ultimately agrees with Spock that it's that it's that again morals win out so yes rules are meant to be broken but values are not and I guess that's the that's the real prime directive I, I think that was pretty beautiful <laughs> <laughs> hug yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah that was that was nice I don't misunderstand I wasn't saying that you guys were replacing that it's actually just sort of in coming back to this show um, you know in, in, for mission log I've sort of had to sort of, well, not had to, but I've chosen to step back and say, okay, so what's the deal with the Prime Directive? Why do I care so much about that? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that I personally don't. I mean, I'm more a fan, and I've <laughs> said this on this show before, I'm more a fan of the Ian Banks uh, culture novels where he's, you know, they come across cavemen, well, not cavemen because they need language, but they come across like, you know, feudal systems and say, hey, we got starships and we can make your life just as easy and just fantastic as you want it. Do you want to be part of this? I mean, to right. me, that's actually kind of a fun thing. So I don't understand, you know, the whole need to, you know, not help people along the road. So then I've had to sort of step back and say, okay, well, if it's not about that, then, you know, what is the prime directive for? And my assumption is it's, it's a constant test for, for Kirk and Spock and for Starfleet in general. I mean, it's, it's a constant test of are we going to be who we say we're going to be or are we going to, you know, are we going to be the people that take the easy way out and start – building secret spaceships you know? and, and a paramilitary yeah, totally. organization that sort of shadows the, the, you know, the good guys that we say we are. I kind of don't want to do this because it's been addressed and addressed and addressed. But Oh, just hit it. It's not, well, no, but it's something that I hit rather frequently uh, when we talk about the original series on Mission Log. Uh, that is uh, sexism in the Star Trek universe. And, and a lot of people will write uh, to us and say, leave it. It was the 60s. These things happened in the 60s. It was a long time ago. 
Um, not that long ago, though, we saw Alice Eve, uh, you know, mostly naked, half naked, uh, on screen in Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013. There are people who say it was just gratuitous, it was just terrible. I might actually surprise you. Well, not, not many people are saying it was terrible, but you get the idea. I might actually surprise you by offering a uh, by offering a justification, which blows my mind. But I mean, God is, bless you. Can, there, can we may actually disagree on this? But go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's not. I mean, don't eh, not a justification, an explanation. I would say a lot of people have said, well, it was absolutely useless. Well, no, it's not. And the only reason I would say it's not is because we all know that Kirk goes for the young, hot, whatever. But when we meet <laughs> Carol Marcus in the, in the Star Trek universe, she's middle-aged, as is Kirk. But we've never seen, you know, that, that woman that would normally attract Kirk's eye. And so in this movie, we do see her. Of course, then we might actually see more of her than maybe we should have. So maybe it went too far, whatever. But I guess, is there... Is there I feel like I would be branded a sellout if I didn't ask you... <laughs> your thoughts on it at this point so Alice is that your Eve, only tough question that's your, okay well I, I, I thought <laughs> well, some of them were tough but this is the one this is the one that I'm most uncomfortable with honestly because 50% of our audience will say I can't believe you bothered him with that question and another 50% would say I can't believe you didn't ask him when you had a chance so so I guess what I will say is Alice Eve Star Trek in the darkness the underwear scene uh, say what you will well first of all um you heard it here first, breaking news. That wasn't Damon's idea. It was JJ's. Hmm. Um, so don't blame Damon. Um, you can blame him for other things. I certainly do. <laughs> um, no. Uh, and it was funny. We, you know, originally they were going to, they were going to, um, uh, they were going to open that torpedo in orbit in space. And so originally we had her going into a, a Kirk chasing her into sort of a, a room where she was changing into a, a spacesuit, essentially. So it it actually seemed more purposeful when we originally conceived it. <laughs> um, for production reasons, we just simply couldn't afford to go out into space, so it turned into the desert floor. Um, and that scene was, though she does, you know, when she's on the desert floor, she's in a different outfit. You could argue that she didn't need to be in a different outfit to be on the desert floor. Uh, so it's a slight holdover from the original conception of everyone's changing into a spacesuit, which, which you know, again made a lot more sense. Um, I can't claim to be uh, an expert on uh, feminism and 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 gender politics at this moment. Uh, I can point out that you see Kirk half naked as well uh, in both movies. Um, He's in his underwear. So's Ahura. Uh, c- did the movie need that scene? No. Uh, have half the websites that I've seen criticize that scene use the exact photograph to publicize their article about the scene? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay. What else can I tell you about it? Uh, was Alice Eve a good sport? Awesome. I- I'm actually torn about it. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you can't watch Miley Cyrus on the VMAs. And not be confused about the state of feminism today. (laughs) (laughs) And and a lot else. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. I'll I'll give you my perspective on it. Um, Not that you ask, but... (laughs) What's the perspective on it? Uh, Well, I'm so glad you asked, Bob. Um, 
I, I have absolutely no problem with uh, sexual content, nudity, whatever, in a movie. I, I, it's great. It's one of the, you know one of the reasons we all love the James Bond films is the undercurrent of sexuality mm-hmm. in them. Horror movies, the same thing. You know, Star Trek. Certainly, throughout the original series, there is a lot of sexuality there. Mm-hmm. So I think that it should be embraced by all means. However, <laughs> that one moment, that one scene in that movie, I think, um, I think it hurts the character, and I think it hurts the Kirk character as well. And it has only to do with context. Um, you're right that Kirk is topless, shirtless in the first movie. He's shirtless again in the second movie. But the context is that he has just had sex. You know, Alien Three-Way with uh, Women with Tails, great. <laughs> if you wanted to make that into a 20-minute scene, you go right ahead. <laughs> because that, that is something about the Kirk character that he was doing. When it turns into the Carol Marcus character, who we're introduced to as a weapons specialist, who is there because of her scientific necessity and also the kind of the the underlying intrigue of uh, her relationship to her father, et cetera, you know. Um, and then it turns into a, a, a the glance, not just by Kirk, but by the camera to catch that. I think it undermines them as characters and it undermines that scene because there's no context to it other than Kirk being kind of creepy and stealing a glance. Now, personally, I, Alice Eve is gorgeous. And if there's another way to justify that, go again, go right ahead. If that's the third movie, it's just all that, you go right ahead because <laughs> I'm sure you can build a story around it. But that's my problem with the way that it was presented in that movie. I think that's fair. You know? I think that's very fair. I, I got to argue with John on one thing, though. This is what we do, by the way, in case you <laughs> haven't is heard our show do. or in case you haven't heard it lately. The one thing I'll say, it. it doesn't diminish Kirk's character at all because Kirk is a young, relatively immature, though maturing guy in this movie. He's more mature at the end of this movie than he was at the beginning. And certainly he's more mature at the beginning of this movie than he was at the beginning of uh, 2009. But, I mean, he's still, he's still James T. Kirk. I mean, and, and I'm not saying so that justifies it because this, again, is one of the arguments that we have in the 60s. But to say that it diminishes his character, that is his character. I mean, that's, I mean Kirk is going to do that every single time you give him the opportunity. Well, he, he's also a starship captain. And he's also held to, you know, we, we pointed out the inappropriate glance that'll give a yeoman every yes. now and then in the original series. But, it, but even then, it's sort of, it's very out of place. And you know what? I, I tell you what, uh, Ken, because it, now that we're unloading, because this is kind of, this is now turning into a very different episode. I think we had originally conceived that what we would do is we would, we would do some discussion. We'd talk about Into Darkness. Then we'd play the interview with Bob, and then we'd, we'd kind of wrap it up. But now we're actually talking about the, the things in the movie where, you know, we're talking about the morals, messages, and meanings. We're talking about the things that worked or, uh, or did not work. So now I, I'm going to have to hit it, be totally honest here, and, and ask you some questions. And I have to ask you about the Kirk death scene. Mm-hmm. The Oh, spoiler alert, by the way, to our audience. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the moments from Wrath of Khan and, and the use of lines mm-hmm. and beats from Wrath of Khan. Tell me about that. Tell me how that happened and, and the discussion about it. 
Well, we knew once once we had a story that we could pitch to each other without relying on previous knowledge, and we made a decision that Khan might fit in there. Uh, then we thought, okay, well, what, what, what is fair game, and what, what element of that in the theory of harmonizing with canon, as I was saying, things that, that, uh, that parallel the other universe. And we thought of ourselves. We thought the first movie, in a sense, from Kirk's point of view, is it's a story about a young man finding his destiny. This movie is about Star Trek Into Darkness. Is about the same man actually finally earning it. And again, using the idea of he got it too fast and that criticism. And so part of earning it meant going a little bit beyond what, not beyond, a parallel to what Wrath of Khan did. In Wrath of Khan, he doesn't face death. He, as he says, he's, he's always cheated it, patted himself on the back afterwards and has to watch his friend die to, to learn that lesson. In our, in our parallel version of it, he comes to the conclusion that the only way to earn it is to, is to be the guy who's willing to go down for the ship and not watch somebody else do it. And so we could have done that in a number of ways. He could have he died in battle with Khan aboard the ship, da-da-da. But once we had Khan... The idea of mirroring that scene started to appeal to us, not only because we have Khan and to 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 dance around it and sort of not. We wanted to embrace it and and and, and let you know that we know what we're that we're that we're paying homage to this and we are paralleling it, as opposed to oh they just they're just ripping off Khan and didn't even really rip it off. They just sort of he's around, but it, you know. Uh, Look, we know it's tricky to tackle essentially one of the most famous scenes in sci-fi history. Uh, but the, our justification in our minds was, and I read this criticism of, well, in Wrath of Khan, they've been friends forever, and it's, it's the end of a friendship. Yes, that's true. In our version, the parallel is it's the first time Spock realizes, damn, Jim Kirk is actually my friend. That's, it's the beginning of their friendship. It is. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, again, a mirror, parallel, harmonic version of what happened. And once we found ourselves in that moment, again, using some of the lines from it, are are to just say, we're we're not going to reinvent the wheel in this moment. Uh, if it ain't broke, kind of don't fix it. But we better have a rationale for why we're doing it. And again, you hear, or at least I hear more criticism on that scene from people who know Wrath of Khan than from people who don't. Because people who don't, they don't have a previous context that they have to erase. And again, I'm not criticizing fans who criticize that moment. I get it. It's hard to unlearn what you've learned. Um, and we pr- maybe maybe slightly underestimated the, the that truth. But if you don't know anything, you're seeing a guy grow up, willing to die for his crew, and teaching his unemotional friend the lesson that they're friends and having his friend react um and so that's that's where that came out of and was that kind of was that mutually agreed upon by 
you and the other writers and JJ did this kind of all come together at the same time, or was it fought? Or you know, once we once we decided that Harrison was really con, uh, we we went for it. We all kind of decided, and we knew that we wanted to echo the impact a little bit of of Wrath of Khan in, in terms of losing somebody, but didn't want to wait a whole movie to get them back. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you know we're not going to... Uh, that would have been that would have been then truly uh, an exact sort of replica, uh, and I think it would have been false. So for those who are like, well, you just brought him right back. It's like, yeah, but uh, we just, just gave you a, the beginning of the next movie. <laughs> you know? Uh, in this movie so that we can get back to the five-year mission. I, I think the the thing that was uh, that was hard for me as a fan of Wrath of Khan, um, and it's funny, Ken, who it, it, you have told me, it, Ken, even before we started doing this show, before we started doing Mission Log, you told me that Wrath of Khan is your Christmas movie. Wrath of Khan is absolutely <laughs> my Christmas movie. Yes, it is. So, I could even tell you why, but that's a boring story. <laughs> but yeah, but it, I, I know Wrath of Khan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting because I, I think this is a dynamic that we have on the regular mission log is, is that episodes of the original series like uh, The Omega Glory or Bread and Circuses, I'm, I'm watching it, I'm invested in it, and then in Omega Glory, when the flag comes out, I tune out. Huh. I go, oh man, are we really doing this? Huh. In Bread and Circuses, when it's the Son of God, not the Son, I, I tune out. I'm like, what are we? What are we doing here? Why are we hitting over the head? You know <laughs> what's happening. And as much as I appreciate and love having this conversation with Ken about the merits of Into Darkness, because I agree with everything. I agree with the idea of putting, risking a summer tentpole movie on an idea on a philosophy and questioning our moral response to an attack. I think, I, I think that's fantastic. I think I tuned out during the radiation chamber scene and, and it, it colored my ability to accept the rest of the movie, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I'll give you a, a comparison. Um, Star Trek 09. I can put that and I was a big, big, big fan of that movie. And as an old school Star Trek fan, gladly defend that movie to people who had a problem with it. I put in that movie and within eight minutes, my girlfriend is a puddle watching that because the emotional impact is so extraordinary in that opening sequence. God, your Did girlfriend. You I'm I'm an emotional. I'm a, He's I'm, a Ken's in a, a puddle. I, I, you know. I, I tear up. Every we're, time we're I all, watch the first eight minutes of that movie, every single time, it makes me nuts, actually, because I'll, soft yeah. to you. I'll, we all get choked. But I'll we come all. back to it and I'll think, oh, it's been long enough now. I've seen it a million times. I know how this is going to happen. And no. And no. Every freaking time. Every time. Yeah. So thanks. So, <laughs> so, so that, that, that's a moment of sacrifice. Brand new characters, new everything that really plays true. You know, and, and you cannot help but be invested in everything that's going on there. And maybe it, it, as you so rightly point out, that my familiarity with the Wrath of Khan, when I get to that scene and into darkness, um, I, I actually I sat there at a screening going, wait, they're not really going to do that, are they? Wait, they, 
Wait, okay, we're, 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 getting, we're getting to the engineering room. We're, uh, wait, uh, we just put Scotty in a chair unconscious. Oh, we're actually doing that now, <laughs> you know? And, and then I just start to kind of think ahead of the movie rather than mm-hmm. being emotionally invested in the scene. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe that's a typical reaction. Maybe you've heard that from a lot of Wrath of Khan fans, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know how typical it is. I have heard that from a lot of Wrath of Khan fans. Mm-hmm. Um, for others, it worked. I do think again. I, under, I think we underestimated the, the the size of that hill. And when I'm watching it, I, I I think most of the audience knows he's not really gonna go. Although some some did. My old film teacher saw it. and It's like what they killed Kirk? Are they you know what? Really? He couldn't believe it. <laughs> um, and thought that was it. Wow. Um, so wow. It, it, it's it's amazing how how differently it plays for different perceptions. Because you, you saw Wrath of Khan when it originally came out, yeah. you said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I remember seeing that. I remember being very excited about the motion picture, seeing that in theaters. And then seeing the Wrath of Khan. And, you know, of course, this is pre-internet. So you're picking up Starlog magazine <laughs> totally. at the time. And you're reading about how Leonard Nimoy had it in his contract that Spock had to die at the end of this movie. and <laughs> And that was it. So you left that theater thinking, wow, they really killed Spock, but what a way to kill him. You know, the, it, it was nothing but the buildup of the emotion for nearly 20 years and, and the ultimate sacrifice. And I actually, I think it must have been 82, 83 that I saw Gene Roddenberry give a speech wow. at uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. He brought wow. the cage. He showed it on the 16 millimeter. Wow. You know, but every question was about the Wrath of Khan because... As far as we knew, Spock was dead. And we had to wait a couple of years to get an answer to that because there was no speculation online. Yeah. There was no, you know, so. We I, knew we couldn't get away with that. Yeah. And, yeah. and well, what did you think? Did you, you didn't think for a minute that Kirk was going to stay dead there, did you? Not for a minute. No. And I think that's okay. I think, I, I, I think for a fan, you you're playing the home game yeah and yeah. and and you you were able to calculate where it was going because you know because you know yeah non-fans they don't know right they don't know what's happening um and so part of the impact i think is doesn't land on us fans as much in that moment because a we know he's probably going to go on yeah uh, uh and b because the just the meaning of it is different. It's not you're not lamenting the end of a friendship. It's sort of cementing the beginning of one. And so, our my this isn't a justification, but the, the the other element of that scene that that plays or that that we were playing for, as opposed to straight like where I'm trying to make you cry over his death, is the conversation about how, I'm afraid to die. How do you how do you not feel this fear? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Spock saying, I, you know, I'm having a hard time not feeling right now. To me, that that was a, a goal of that scene that whether he's dying or not, I, 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 I like the, the, the conversation, um, especially in light of Spock sitting there with Pike and sort of feeling his feelings when he dies. And so it was more of a, I like to think of that as like that scene as it's a near-death experience that yeah. Kirk has. And it allows them to talk about near-death experiences in the light of all the death that they've seen. But I understand 
your criticism of of not falling for it and of of uh of it you know not having the same impact it, it's we we never expected the same impact right we're going for a different feeling and 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 uh it, i think it'll it, i'll be i'll be curious to see what you think of it seeing it again at a future date when you know the whole yeah. score I, I saw it like three times in a week. In a week, and, wow! And and, um, and 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 then online. Wow! Going into this, let but me, I, I, I guess. Wait, wait, wait! Go ahead, go ahead, Ken. You're beating him up enough. Let me, let me, let me go oh, the no, other no, way no. really quickly. Uh, and I think it's extraordinarily civil and interesting. <laughs> no, it absolutely is. And I and I will say, um, I'm you know, if I'm listening, I'm jealous of us because we get to sit here and have this conversation. Let me go the other way really quickly though. Um, we all know I can do lines from from the scene in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. We all know how Spock deals with this situation. We don't know how Kirk deals with this because, as you say, there's. I mean, in in Wrath of Khan, there's the whole you know wink and a nod, like oh yeah, well, I've never really faced death. And then when he has to, you know, the death of his friend. Yes, theoretically, Kirk has come close to death before, but we always know it's not going to happen. I mean, we've always known up to that point it's not going to happen. So giving us a chance to sort of examine what that would look like from the other side is kind of interesting. There's also a little bit of the, you know, the idea that maybe some of uh, the Spock friendship is already starting to rub off on Kirk. And that, you know, he is willing to go in there and, and sacrifice himself. But I think the most important thing for me to say, there is important stuff that happens in Act 4 of the Omega Glory, John. <laughs> I mean, there, I mean, and, and and I say that both, you know, so that hopefully you'll go back yeah. and watch the Omega Glory at some point. But also, don't, don't go back and watch uh, the Omega Glory. If <laughs> if you hit like one moment, that I mean, that I mean, come on, dude. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's but, important but see, stuff going on there. So no risk, no reward, pal. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's just it. I mean, it, we, we can look at at this movie, and, and as we look at all of Star Trek, we we're looking at it in two different ways. We're looking for the morals, meanings, messages. We also ask ourselves: Does this show hold up? Does it hold up as you know individually? Does an episode hold up as something you can watch today, nearly fifty years later? And go. This is well written, well made. I'm invested in it. All of those questions, and and with Into Darkness, I I have to look at it both ways. And I go, yeah, there's a movie with a message, and there's a movie with a thought provoking idea, just like Corbomite Maneuver, which was a, very easy for me to dismiss hmm. two decades ago. I'll go, oh, you have someone with a monster, but it's really Clint Howard, blah blah blah. But then there's a message at the end that says. We have to ask ourselves who we are in the face of danger. It's great. And I, in no way will I deny that of Into Darkness because it it dares to ask that question. Um, but <laughs> as a movie, as as somebody who has enjoyed Star Trek before, sitting in the audience waiting to be surprised, entertained, wowed, you know, all of these things going through my head, I get to that point and I go, oh, I wanted something different. And, and I think there's part of me that has a little bit of a fear that is, okay, if that scene isn't written for me, if it's written for a different audience who are, who are not the people who have seen Wrath of Khan 30 times and still get choked up at that scene, at Spock's death, if that's not written for me, and it is written for people who have, have maybe a passing familiarity with Khan. 
does it then play as parody? You know, when we've had George Costanza yelling Khan in Seinfeld, or any time somebody says, no, I am your father, now it plays as parody of that scene in Empire Strikes Back, or when somebody yells Khan, it plays as parody of that scene in Wrath of Khan. I would argue that it's still written for you. Yeah. But, but us people who know Trek, I guess I, I, I expect us to play three-dimensional chess a little bit. <laughs> you're, you, you have a more refined palette than your regular viewer. And so for me, the way that I would hope that a, that, uh, a, a, a Trek fan who, who is pulled out of the movie as you were and who, who, who the experience changes when you see that moment – that's when you're swirling the wine in your mouth and trying to that's when you should be trying to taste the complicated flavors even if it's not exactly the the guzzling of wine that you were that you were hoping for i think it was actually drinking jameson during were the drinking jameson? screening yeah um, <laughs> I, I think at that point it, it does become maybe more of an intellectual exercise for some of us trek fans who who do know wrath of khan and to me that is that, that, that in that sense the scene is written for you in that sense Again, in that sense, you are there now playing the home game and analyzing it in a way that others can't. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, as you're saying, it comes at a price. The price is you've been in, uh, seeing the movie one way until that moment and then suddenly becomes, suddenly you're writing a dissertation about it in your mind about is this working or, you know, like the right. comparison to this or that. I would argue there's value to that and and that, that, that I, I don't discount your criticism and yet uh it's not as easy to unpack that scene and just say it's it's easy not it is is it easy to say and you're right to say i wish i'd seen something else i don't think that what happens from that point on in the movie is 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 uh something that isn't juicy to analyze as we're doing now <laughs> right right all right well uh, mark, mark this moment can uh where bob or validates my feelings <laughs> He, he won't make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, Rod, who's too embarrassed to, uh, uh, to chime in at this point, says, I think John is crazy. I love the ending, <laughs> the homage. And, uh, and that's why Rod will remain a silent partner in the show. <laughs> can, can you tell us really quickly where there, you mentioned the, the cut scene that could have potentially bridged the, uh, the, at the Carol Marcus going into the space oh yeah um were there other cut scenes that that we should be aware of that uh maybe you know nothing nothing major this one Mm -hmm. you know in the first movie there were whole sequences that didn't make it like nero's prison break and all kinds of stuff this one uh most of it ended up on screen i'm having trouble you know stuff sort of changed but i don't know that we filmed a whole lot that that didn't make it you know pretty much by the time we were shooting we we had to have it locked down there are many, many things that that I very gladly accept about however you want to call that reboot. Do you do you refer to it as a reboot? That, oh, that call it a sequel. Here? Sequel. Okay. Well, I mean, going back to '09. Yeah, it's a sequel. Sequel. Okay. Cool. Sequel. Prequel. Rehash. Reboot. Re- <laughs> restart. Not a reboot. I don't. I, I okay. Accept reboot. All right. That's cool. Um, I get why you don't because you had Nimoy. Yeah. Correct. That's why go. it was yeah. that or nothing. Yeah. Fascinating. But, Sorry, not not to use a hackneyed. No, that was good. Fascinating. Well played, well played, Ken. Um, yeah, there are many many th- changes that I accept and embrace. I, I like that, and and 
the, where I stumbled, as we've now beaten to death, is just the emotional moment, you know. So there, but I've I I got to say my piece, and I got to say it in front of the guy who wrote it. <laughs> so so now let me ask you a question. Go ahead. When Kirk yells Khan in Wrath of Khan, why is he so mad? He's not mad. It's a ruse. It's a ruse. It's a ruse. So he's faking that scream. He is he is <laughs> screaming for Khan to hear it. Because remember, that is also the scene where he and Spock have also just played out what the game is. And the game is... So he's the, faking it. Yeah. He's faking it. He's faking it. <laughs> now, he's he, he can be mad about a lot of things. You know, he can be mad about potentially having been beaten. But I think there's a lot going on there. It's not purely out of And anger. when did you come to this conclusion? Uh, oh, I don't know what. The, the 20th time I watched it <laughs> out of the 30 or 40 or whatever. So not this week. No, no, not this week. <laughs> Fair enough. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it, it, and here's what's so interesting about that scene. That scene is parodied over and over and over again, and it's parodied for anger. Oh, God, I'm so mad at you. But that that's the Kirk gambit. That's Kirk being two steps ahead of Khan. And you have to... I, I, I remember as a kid seeing that for the first few times. I had no idea what was going on. Oh, no, Kirk's been beaten. Oh, wait, Kirk got lucky. But then we realized later on that Kirk did not get lucky. Kirk had a plan. He got lucky with the plan, but he had a plan, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, Spock yelling Khan... Was not a ruse. He was angry, and he let his emotional self get the better of him. Correct. So they play differently. They absolutely play differently as scenes. But like I said, I think that Khan, yelling Khan, all of this stuff has now become a part of pop culture. It's not just the purview of Star Trek anymore. So when when you have it on Seinfeld, for all the people who just, oh yeah, I remember that scene where that guy yelled Khan, it, it sort of takes the weight out of it. You're killing me with this. Why am I killing you with this? You're killing me with this. because I'm having a conversation that's awesome. If everybody can do that thing that came from Star Trek, why can't Star Trek? It happens in a different, <laughs> it, it happens in a different way this time. I mean, this time, and, and honestly, uh, what, what Bob, I mean, excuse me, what John was just saying, Bob, he actually told me that when we were in Vegas like about a month ago, and it blew my mind when he said it because if you work the time, he's actually probably right, but that's not what's going on this time. I mean, there's still, there's still fixed points in time, and yeah, Spock gets to be angry sometimes. I mean, Spock has bloodlust by the time he actually catches up with that. Uh, by the time he actually catches up with uh, with Khan on the surface. Ken, here's what's going to happen. A year from now, it's going to be you and me and Bob in Vegas in a hotel yeah, room. and Rod. Doing, and Rod for about four <laughs> hours hashing this out. Okay. We start yeah, we, with shots. We end with shots. And we there, start, there should be we, shots in the middle. In between. Yeah. We, we, we start with shots during Spock's brain where you have to take a shot every time they say Spock's brain. Love it. Yeah, and one of us will be dead by the end of it. We'll never get to end the darkness <laughs> then. Let me ask you this. I mean, so we're, we're talking, in this case, in Into Darkness, the, the prime directive and Kirk's speech at the end really being about what, what is politically topical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 
certainly Into Darkness inspired by, uh, by what happened at 9-11 and the, the war on terror, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. happening after that. Um, now we're faced with a new situation that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, talking about Syria, and you know what are our responsibilities to other cultures? Um, when is it right for us to step in? When is it wrong for us to step in? Is there more of that that Star Trek needs to continue to explore? And I assume yes, but what are the other important topics that Star Trek can and should try to tackle? Uh, Like I said, no one episode or one movie of Star Trek can cover all the things that Star Trek can cover. So yes, in the future, I think it should continue to cover the politics of the day, just like it did in the 60s with, again, representing Kennedy, representing a thawing of the Cold War through Chekhov, representing civil rights through Uhura, representing all kinds of stuff that's in the swirl. <laughs> NASA shut down recently. <laughs> uh, or so we're led to believe, anyway. Um, the idea of not being in constant conflict and actually having a little bit of leisure time to dream about pure exploration and pure scientific goodness and pure helping ourselves out through climbing a mountain I think that's a place for Star Trek to to continue to go to I think some of the best Star Trek did that and and it's it reflects you know in a, in a way into darkness as Scotty says reflects the fact that we're taking our eye off the ball a little bit in terms of these great things that we could be doing we could be building uh, great things we could be rebuilding our country and rebuilding the world and instead we're mired in conflict and it'd be nice to not always be mired in conflict uh, though that is a state of our world right now, um, Star Trek is able to do both. I think it can reflect, as Star Trek Into Darkness did, the fact that, God, I'd like to be, uh, yeah, Scotty, I'd like to be exploring too, man, but we got this problem right now. Uh, I think future Star Trek can can show the other side too, that sometimes you have bought yourself the time and you've earned yourself the the freedom to to just see what's on top of the mountain and, and not anticipate evil. So is Star Trek, uh, you described it as both a, a reflection uh, of what's going on now, but also some level of inspiration. Aspirational. Uh-huh. Aspiration. Um, so is it a an even remotely believable roadmap of where humanity should go? Are you, are you optimistic about that future? Um, you know what? What would we have to do to get to that point? Look, I'm just a hacky screenwriter. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a big question. <laughs> you heard it here first, uh, folks. <laughs> uh, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm a uh, one of a, a a few caretakers of Star Trek for now, and that I'm a in a way. Uh, a slightly half-appointed, half-elected official whose term will end. And and I'm lucky enough to be serving Star Trek right now. 
And therefore, I'm mindful of it not being simply a excuse or a mouthpiece for whatever my personal views are. Uh, I read some critical reviews uh, calling me out in particular for some of the conspiracy-minded things that I've said online, what I like to call uh, conspiracy realism. Um, and so I, I read a couple of reviews where the, someone said something like, you know, hey, I, I'd, lo- I'd love the message of the movie if I didn't know that Bob Orsi was such a nut who probably didn't really mean what the text of the movie said, but he really is hiding his secret political conspiracy theories. Uh, my response to that would be that it's just a question. These, the movie is a question. It's not an answer. And so those who say, like, the movie is, well, that movie clearly, it's his point of view that, you know, that Bin Laden was, behind, uh, was not behind 9-11 or, or that the Boston bombers were whatever. That's not true. The movie is, is, a, is exactly what it says it is. And to reuse the rules of canon... Only what is filmed is canon, I think, is the, the fan consensus, I think, right now. And maybe, maybe not the animated series. But <laughs> and maybe, maybe not the animated series, actually. Um, so it's meant to be a question. You know, look at the first movie where Spock is Obama and Kirk is Bush. They're both still our presidents, and they're both still the heroes of the movie, but they have different styles at the time. Uh, when Obama was was uh, uh, nothing but promise and and potential and opportunity, uh, and the same in this movie, uh, Khan does bad things, uh, but it's never that simple, you know. He 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 has a case and he has been manipulated, and and it's wonderful to be able to honor Star Trek and also have it. Uh, honor itself by being able to to raise these questions without being didactic about it but uh, and and it's not it's not the first time you know undiscovered country was very much um, a political movie and it's interesting to see some of the anger generated by even trying to tackle you know a subject that is that is so on our minds um, but Again, it's the power of Star Trek that allowed us to get away with it. Normally, had any of these viewpoints been associated with, with something else, I don't, I don't know that we'd get away with it. I think, I think, the power of Star Trek is that that we, that you can, use it as a as a megaphone to ask a question, and, and, that is its true cultural treasure and its true cultural significance. Because ultimately, you're going to get some people on the periphery of 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 the spectrum who will attack no matter what you say in Star Trek but for the most part there are shields up around Star Trek uh, there are shields around that ship that allow you to to get crazy and to and to and to do some cool stuff and it's easy to forget how in the 60s how how forward looking it was and how how many barriers it was breaking and how many 
moral dilemmas it was tackling. And I think it was just so, uh, so something you hadn't seen before that it, that at the time I think it escaped. It was so deft at actually reflecting on society that it, that it, that it escaped, uh, anger. Now we're all plugged in and, and we're all super savvy and audiences are super savvy and, and they can smell when something is becoming slightly important. <laughs> and so, and so they'll react accordingly based on their worldview. Part of the response to darkness is that some people when faced with the, with the enormity of the painful things that exist on this planet, they think I'm powerless. I'm just one person. What can I do? As you probably know from my Twitter feed, uh, I've adopted the point of view that the one thing we can all do is just say something. Uh, in fact, I'll take, I'll take that uh, from Homeland Security. If you see something, say, say something. something. So every time I see one of those tweets, I go, I just saw Dick Cheney. Go get him. <laughs> <laughs> um, saying something actually is, is, is quite a bit. It's, it's, it's quite a big thing to do. Simply going, I don't like that. I wish we wouldn't do that that is especially in this day and age especially with with social media and with the ability for your voice to be heard around the world no matter who you are uh saying something actually is is quite a bit of a fight it's quite a bullet to have in your gun without even having to have a bullet and so i i liken social media and the internet to the printing press uh, i think that it it could indeed uh, be a conduit for all of us talking about what we all think is right and actually making it clear. So, and that's why, okay, the NSA is spying on me. Well, then I'm going to speak up a lot because, <laughs> okay, I'm glad they're recording it. I'm glad they have Nielsen ratings to, to gauge whether or not we all want to go to Syria. Yeah. Wrong or right, uh, that's, that's what you can do. So I'm uh, uh, hopeful that the lessons that we have from history these days are able to be uh, processed much faster than they were before. Uh, we can all, you know, we can all analyze an event now in a way that we never could um, before, and we can all come to consensus on it in a way that we never could before at a speed of light. So, assuming the internet doesn't get taken over soon, uh, I'm hopeful. I cannot thank our guest enough a this pleasure. has been awesome absolutely fantastic anytime and, and we're anytime we're doing this every week now i was just going to say anyway. you want to say same time next week yeah and you're going to give us a, a, an update every week on star trek 3 <laughs> yeah as long as you have stuff to pitch me <laughs> the trial of Khan. yeah <laughs> it'll be great exactly all right man thank you thank you And one of the cool things about sitting down with Bob and having this conversation, and I hope we get to do it again, because I, I think we almost just scratched the surface, even for as much as we got out of him. Um, he, he said a lot as he was leaving. And uh, there, there are a few other little uh, knowledge bombs I'd like to drop here. Uh, first of all, Harrison, the John Harrison character, was originally written as Erickson. So the actors are saying Erickson, and then they were all dubbed to say Harrison. And also before that, that character was supposed to be Robert April. 
So I thought it was very interesting that they had, you know, written something from the canon and then they decided to go a different direction and then they changed it again. Um, but you know what this all comes down to is another little bit of information that I thought was fascinating. Um, they used Harrison slash Erickson as a way to kind of uh, obfuscate the idea of Khan. He says that he thinks that all the secrecy about Khan was probably a bad idea. And mm. I have to agree. Yeah, I was going to say there, <laughs> there are a lot of people who would agree with him on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, he said, you know, th- this is not a writer decision. This is kind of the way that J.J. operates, is trying to create some mystery, some intrigue around a product. Um, and, I, you know, I don't want plot points leaked, but I feel like that is not a plot point. Um, it, it, it didn't, I, I would say it definitely did not help my enjoyment of the movie to not, you know, to, to go in there with this idea of, oh, it's not Khan, but we all really know that it's Khan. Um, I think that that kind of hurt it. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that he said that for the next movie that they write, he really wants to concentrate on cementing the Kirk Spock-McCoy relationship. And uh, for that, yes, uh, the, the slow clap uh, as, as he left, <laughs> you know, because uh, I, I agree. I think that's something that we're missing. We, we get tastes of it. Um, but I really want to see more of that. And uh, he's on the same page with fans who say that as well. Do you think he was serious when he said that we need to pitch him ideas the next time we talk to him? Even if he wasn't serious, I'm going to take that seriously. And I'm just going to constantly send him ideas. Because I've got got thoughts. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, get me on an elevator with that man. You know, 30 seconds. And I'll, I'll pitch him an idea. I, here, here's the idea, just to give you, you know, sort of an idea. I, okay, yeah. I, I really think it ought to cement the Kirk-Spock-McCoy relationship. Oh, okay, good. Good. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> I think I'm halfway to a movie. I think you are. <laughs> hey, um, I want to seriously and sincerely thank our listeners who, um, uh, who allowed us to kind of step out and do this special with Bob Orsi. And you have been continuing to send in your thoughts, your questions, your, your comments and ideas. Uh, we're going to return very soon to our regular supplemental format where we get to uh, engage a little more with those questions. We had to get this one out there. We are going to play some more from our time in Vegas because that was a blast and we have some really cool content from that uh and then we'll get back to our our regular q a format and some other very interesting interviews coming up now leaving nerdist.com 